Hello and welcome to the Autism in Real Life podcast. In each episode, you'll get practical strategies by taking a journey into the joys and challenges of life with autism. I'm your host, Ilya Walsh, and I'm an educator and the parent of two young adults, one of which is on the autism spectrum. Join me as I share my experience and the experiences of others so that we may see the unique gifts and talents of individuals on the autism spectrum fully recognized. everyone and welcome. This is Ilya. And uh, in this episode, we are going to talk about anxiety and the overlap with autism. So um, this is part six of my six part series of my little mini course. Um, And so we're coming to a close for this mini course. However, I do have you know, speakers who I've been meeting with who are amazing that will cover each one of these topics in a little bit more detail. And so um, definitely look for them to come. So they'll be coming in the next few weeks. Um, and so, you know, this piece here, anxiety is is very interesting because it's not part of the uh, diagnostic criteria for autism. Um, as as you see, we haven't talked about that, but, um, but it definitely is a huge component. And I've heard a number somewhere around 70 or 75 percent of people diagnosed with autism have anxiety. And that number is definitely too low. <laughs> uh, I, I have not met anyone with autism that does not have uh, anxiety. And so, you know, one of the things we really need to be mindful of, especially given the current climate of, um, you know, whether it's COVID and social distancing and, um, you know, just not being able to follow our usual routines and structures, um, you know, everyone's kind of anxious and on edge right now. So um, I would say that people with autism, it's even more magnified. Uh, And I did uh, an interview with Carrie Dunn-Buran, and uh, she is the creator of the Five Point Scale. So some of you may have been using this or have been introduced to that scale, um, but it is about emotional regulation. And so, um, you know, she and a team of people have been talking about if, uh, if the DSM five were to revise, or I guess if the DSM were to revise, uh, the autism criteria that emotional regulation should be a part of that. And so that's where the, uh, anxiety piece would come in. And so, um, that makes total sense to me. Because I think one of the things we have to think about is when, if you've been following some of my other podcasts, you know, we talk about the multi, the multifaceted um, pieces that go into autism. And so when we talk about the sensory sensitivities, when we talk about social communication challenge, 
challenges and we talk about executive functioning challenges, um, you know, when we look at those pieces and then we look at um, anxiety, right, I think this is where it all kind of intersects. So if you're having trouble uh, noticing social cues, if you're having trouble trying to find the right words or you have... um, trouble, you know, communicating in general with, you know, words um, or even in written format, then, you know, it, it can't be uh, easy to navigate social situations. And then you're also not sure that what you're saying is coming across uh, in a certain way. And so uh, that can create some anxiety, not knowing how to, um, you know, interact during group settings or in a classroom or with a peer group or with, um, you know, your teachers or with your family. So, um, so right there out of the gate, just with social communication, there's some anxiety. Uh, when we're talking about restrictive and repetitive behaviors, um, there's another piece, right? So people might see them as odd or it might feel uncomfortable to, you know, stim while in class because people are going to look at me funny or maybe it actually feels funny for me even though I like it. It might be weird to be spinning when other people are not doing that as well. And how does that fit in socially? So then we go back to the social piece. So again, you you know, or talking about your special interests and some people may not um, get it or maybe some people don't want to hear what you have to say or you're not sure if people want to know what you have to say or want to hear what you have to say. So again, that can raise anxiety. Now let's get into the sensory sensitivities, right? If we have um, clothing that's uncomfortable or lighting that's uncomfortable or scents that are uncomfortable, now we're going to have heightened anxiety. And so again, Um, you know, we're going to feel uh, confused and uncertain about the environment that we're in and maybe not know how to fix that. And then we get into the executive functioning piece also, where if I'm not sure about how to arrive on time or I'm not sure how to organize that project or that paper that I have to do, I'm not sure how to pay bills because I'm not sure what the order is or how to actually manage that process that's going to raise anxiety. And so if we take just even a little smidgen of any one of these and put them together, you can see how it can create um, the perfect storm for a heightened sense of anxiety. And so, you know, what we might see when someone is anxious is, you know, we might see then this avoidant behavior. So they might avoid hanging out with people. <laughs> they might avoid going to class. They might avoid getting their work done. Um, and they might avoid any sort of uncomfortable outside stimuli because it's just too much. And this is true for all anxiety. So it's not just unique to, again, the autism population. I think anxiety is a, a huge issue in general. Um, and then anxiety can lead to depression. And so, um, you know, there are so many people who um, are are managing these, you know, anxiety and depression that, um, you know, we need to really have that lens and be, you know, watching and monitoring. So when we start seeing that avoidant type of behavior, uh, then, you know, we might want to raise a little bit of a red flag. Now, of course, as 
someone might start avoiding uh, their tasks, uh, then there's ramifications for that. So I missed class or I didn't get my work done or, um, you know, I didn't show up for work. Now what do I do and how do I manage that? And now that becomes a, an additional stressor. And then maybe possibly not knowing how to manage those steps can then magnify the situation. So, you know, this is how it kind of sort of spirals into not eating and not showering and um, not wanting to leave the house. And so, you know, it can, uh, it can feel very scary, the outside world, when it feels like it's all overwhelming. So we want to really think about looking at those signs. Um, and, you know, another, another piece might be engaging in activities, uh, especially like that special interest. And we've talked about that special interest being a source of comfort and, uh, and that's great, but it can also become a place where we can overindulge. Um, and then it becomes a strategy for avoiding, uh, the school and, <laughs> and the schoolwork, the workplace and other things. So, um, if you listen to my episode with Tony Atwood, we get really in detail about um, those types of um, behaviors around special interests. So um, I would encourage you to check that out. And so, uh, you know, once once we reach this heightened sense of anxiety, it can even be challenging to even reach out for help because we're not sure um, if someone will help us. We're not sure maybe how to go about that um, and what that process is. Uh, so, you know, definitely uh, having some sort of connections um, would be really helpful. I mean, I think one thing we might want to think about is, um, you know, creating those routines um, and things that are predictable. So again, you know, right now during COVID and, uh, you know, social distancing and sort of a, a lack of, uh, knowing what's coming next, I think we still need to create some sort of routines and structures for ourselves. And so this is true um, for anxiety in general. And we try to create some sort of predictability and some sort of routine that we can rely on so that um, the world feels a little a little less scary and it's safer. Um, so some things we might see in addition to, uh, you know, avoiding uh, being inside or, you know, avoiding tasks and engaging with people, perhaps precursors to that um, might be, you know, and as many different types of people there are, are the many different ways that people could present. So um, there might be some pacing or fidgeting or, or maybe lack of movement. And that could be the other piece. Um, maybe over asking questions um, or maybe not asking any questions if there's someone that usually asks a lot of questions. Uh, maybe they're uh, becoming increasingly loud or, you know, uh, being unreasonable with, you know, tasks uh, and demands that would be very normal um, and are part of a, an old routine. Maybe it's not, uh, the response is not the same. Uh, maybe they are particularly quiet and sort of uh, removing themselves from a particular situation and they're not participating in a way that they normally would. They don't want to share their opinion um, or they're afraid to have an opinion. So we look for that. Uh, and also, you know, um, it, it, it can change. So one thing we have to think about is 
as we're looking at all of those different um, pieces of uh, ways, you know, like that intersection of all of those different facets that we've talked about and how they might play out with anxiety, um, you know, we have this sort of ceiling effect and someone can then shut down. Right. And all of those things that I've been talking about are sort of the precursors to a shut a shutdown. And we might also have heard the term meltdown. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think those terms are becoming, again, um, very normative in our in our, you know, conversations these days. Um, but the meltdown is actually the no, not the inability, I would say, to take in any more information. It can't process anymore. And really then um, not knowing what to do with all of that uh, emotion and all of that input. And so um, there, you can't really process any more information. So you do need to uh, find ways to take that, that break. So Something, uh, another sort of visualization is, uh, and I, I've worked with people uh, at A&E who have helped with, you know, these types of um, areas. I am not a clinician, but I did work with many of them there. And one of the things they would talk about is, um, you know, how much capacity do we have as an individual? So, you know, we talk about the cup um, and, you know, some days, and this is true for all of us, some days, you know, if we each have like this cup of capacity, I would say, let's think of it as a coffee cup. Um, you know, is our coffee cup big? Uh, you know, is it like that big giant 20 ounce um, cup? And we can take on a lot and we can fill that cup up a lot. And there's a lot of capacity and a lot of space. Uh, but sometimes we just have like, you know, the eight ounce cup. And, you know, that's all we got for, for the day is that eight ounce cup. And sometimes we just have like the little demi tasse, you know, that little espresso cup that fill, that has like two ounces. So, you know, each day all of us bring a different size cup. Um, and we have to remember that, you know, those with autism, sometimes that cup already comes pre-filled every day. So maybe it is an eight ounce cup, but maybe it already has two to four ounces already in it just from waking up and getting ready for the day. Um, and then the bus ride, I heard, you know, we're having a conversation with someone <laughs> where the bus ride is now maxed out some of that cup, right? And so we need to figure out ways to decompress and empty out that cup. So that's when strategies come in to being able to help people kind of manage that. So some things um, you, we might want to consider when we do that is, of course, you know, therapies and there's all different types of ways um, to help manage some of that. Uh, but we definitely want to think about, you know, breath and breathing. We want to think about maybe meditation. Definitely physical activity can help. Um, use of the special interest, definitely. Let's go to that and use that as well. Um, and then breaks, you know, walking breaks, relaxing breaks, and a lot of these can be kind of um, blended together. Uh, maybe there are some fidget toys. I know 
and call them toys, but um, really they're just, you know, sort of something to hold on to. I know uh, even when I'm interviewing someone or I'm podcasting, I have, um, you know, I might have beads or a bracelet in my hand that kind of help me feel grounded and here in the space that I'm in so that I can attend better. Um, so those types of things can be really helpful. Um, you know, maybe it's affirmations, positive affirmations. Uh, I also think it's really important to have a trusted person in in their life. So it could be uh, a, a therapist, it could be a teacher or a family member or a friend, um, you know, just someone that uh, they can go to to talk and feel like they have someone that they can connect with that can, um, can help them through maybe a particularly rough spot or maybe it's someone they visit regularly that can help them kind of uh, empty out that cup a little bit, right, and decompress. Uh, and then if if we do end up with that meltdown um, or a shutdown is another way to say it, uh, allowing for that, allowing space for that and finding a place to kind of decompress um, and then just let it be a safe space and hold space for them um, to to kind of have that decompression. It is really a decompression. It's just a different version of it. Um, and it's because it's just, you know, it, the cup got overfall. Um, you know, I, I think there's also that soda can uh, visual that I think people can relate to, right? The soda can is full already. And then if you shake it up just a little bit, <laughs> that thing is going to explode and go all over the place. So think of it in that way. And sometimes all we can do is just open up that can and let out some of the air and let out some of that um, energy that's been built up in there so that we can bring it back to normal. So I, I would say that's sort of a, a good analogy to think about how to manage, um, you know, anxiety. And then um, after, you know, maybe after that meltdown, we can have some conversation around maybe what led to it um, and, you know, kind of identifying what some of the uh, activators were for that so that we can bring some self-awareness. And if we bring more self-awareness and, you know, if you've been listening, that's something that I'm really strong. Uh, I'm really, uh, I feel very strongly about uh, the self-awareness piece is then trying to identify what are the things that kind of activate me and how can I mitigate them before I get to um, that very anxious place or just before we get to that meltdown place. So, um, you know, those are just a few, you know, ideas and tips and definitely we will be getting more into, um, you know, the anxiety piece uh, as we move through. But um, I hope this gives just a little bit of a sense of how this plays into the overall, you know, autism, uh, uh, autism diagnosis and how it might look when, you know, you're working with someone or you're living with someone and you, you know, start noticing some of the anxious um, signs, um, how to help mitigate them with a few, uh, a few techniques here. So, Thank you so much for um, listening in, and uh, I will talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to Autism in Real Life. This is Elia Walsh, and if you like the show, please hit subscribe so you can get notified each time a new episode is released. I also offer training, consultations, and parent coaching 
and would love to help you in any way that I can. You can check out my offerings at thespectrumstrategy.com. And when you join my email list, you can get a code to receive a discount off of an online class or a coaching session. Looking forward to hearing from you. Take care and see you next time.